Billions hidden beyond reach. So proclaimed the headline in the Washington Post this week, as the paper and more than 100 partner news organizations around the world reported on a remarkable cache of documents exposing a secretive offshore system that hides billions of dollars from tax authorities, creditors, criminal investigators, and the public. And who takes advantage of the system? World leaders like Jordan's King Abdullah, the Prime Minister of the Czech Republic and the Presidents of Ukraine, Ecuador, and Kenya, among others, not to mention Russian oligarchs, Middle Eastern princes, art dealers, and professional scam artists seeking to protect their assets from the clawing hands of law enforcement agents and financial regulators. We'll talk to one of the lead reporters on this project, The Washington Post's Greg Miller, about how these documents surfaced and what they have exposed on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So quite a uh, cache of uh, previously secret documents uh, that have uh, been now made public by lots of newspapers around the world who had access to this, a sort of international consortium of of news organizations, and they've made from some really rich reporting about how all sorts of people avoid and uh, escape any transparency about their assets, including, as I mentioned, world leaders. But to me, you know, I think the uh, this is just a reminder of the sort of avalanche of leakers and whistleblowers who have been coming forward in recent years. You know, we had this week, you know, the truly remarkable testimony of Francis Hogan, the uh, Facebook whistleblower coming forward and testifying before the Senate about how Facebook uh, has basically uh, ignored internal warnings about the harm that its uh, its system was was doing. But, you know, there's, you know, so many more. There have been, you know, repeated leaks of these financial documents. You know, this was this is called the Pandora Papers, the new one. But, you know, before that, there was the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers. And, you know, one after another, leakers are coming forward, whistleblowers are coming forward and um, really making an impact. Yeah, uh, we're, we're going to talk to Greg Miller about this phenomenon in our conversation. And, you know, it, it is clearly technology related because, you know, digital technology makes it easier for people to actually collect all of this information and then put it out there. But it's it's technology related in, a, in another sense, a more profound sense, uh, which has led to this kind of era of, of radical uh, transparency, which is, you know, the internet has just empowered people, individuals, and in some ways weakened institutions and emboldened people to be able to actually take on institutions in ways that we never have been able to do before. So this is not going away. Uh, I think there's just going to be more and more of it. And I got to say, I mean, I watched the Frances Hogan's testimony and she was about as 
credible and believable and earnest a whistleblower as I can remember seeing. I mean, really powerful testimony citing how Facebook's own research has identified how the clickbait nature, centrality of the Facebook algorithm, that if it engages, if it gets you excited, if it gets you angry, you like it more, you pass it on more, and that's what's feeding so much of the political divisions in our our country. And just one other thing, you know, I was struck watching an interview that was done on CNN, Monica Bickard, who's been a longstanding Facebook top executive, uh, a woman, former federal prosecutor, you know, gets invited on all sorts of panels. And she kept referring the to stolen Hogan. documents, stolen the documents, stolen, stolen documents, three times <laughs> in I the know, course of I know. two minutes. And she said this stolen material. Right? And actually, the truth is, and, and I know that Victoria is going to want to weigh in on this, but just uh, my last point on this is that. You know, I think actually there is a Victoria may have even written it herself. There is a like a clause in uh, in the Dodd Frank law that actually protects people, whistleblowers, from taking this this kind of information and giving it to the government, giving it to the SEC, for example, because this is information that could have a material effect on you know shareholders' interests, and so. She did her best to make this whistleblower look like a criminal, but I thought it was actually pretty heavy handed. And the Facebook whistleblower, for the record, is incredibly well lawyered up with a whistleblower lawyer. I mean, that's actually kind of one of the more interesting developments, I think, probably in the last 20 years in D.C., which is that there is an entire kind of culture of whistleblower lawyers now. Mike, I think you you have a few of them on speed dial. I'm not, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure, have, uh, but uh, but there but there communications are, with them. Yes, there there are whistleblower blower lawyer specialists. There's an entire subculture of law and technology to kind of uh, protect whistleblowers today. I want to say that there's one. By theme. the way, can I just throw you? You just reminded me. Let's not forget that it was a whistleblower who triggered the first impeachment of Donald Trump uh, on the Ukraine matter. But I think there is what's interesting is that there is a a kind of a theme that joins the Facebook whistleblower and the the Pandora Papers and what it reveals, which is that in both instances, they either reveal a corporate or a rich individual's kind of relentless effort to find the small gaps in law and to manipulate the system for every incremental additional penny that they can obtain. They both reveal kind of a culture of profound secrecy to insulate these corporations or these individuals from accountability. And these whistleblowers in both instances have really shown a light on a kind of a culture that that you and I can only imagine, a culture of billionaires who will do anything that they can to protect so their next here's a, billion. Here's my, a, a question for you. Is Danny right that Hogan is protected by Dodd-Frank because she her stolen material was material that she's turning over to the government and could have a material impact on the company and therefore she doesn't have to worry about Facebook coming after her? I think she does have to worry about Facebook coming after her, but I think that she probably didn't testify or do anything 
regarding this without having first an extraordinary crew of lawyers go through everything and make sure that she was about as well protected as she possibly could be. And by the way, it's specifically in regards to the SEC, is my understanding, because, you know, it is the Dodd-Frank law. And so that would be the regulator. Right. So there's no there's a now she could actually be given kind of immunity from at least criminal prosecution if she were to testify before Congress. So that's one thing that they have the ability to to grant her. Famously, Congress has done it before to people and gotten them out of jail and they probably shouldn't have gotten them out of jail, but they probably could give her immunity from criminal prosecution for this, whether or not they they, they can't immunize her from kind of a civil claim. I, I'm sure that Facebook has got a lot of lawyers looking through this right now. But it does sort of raise that kind of quintessential, remember the Streisand effect, right? Sort of like in the, in the process of suing someone over libel or for doing this, all they do is just basically open themselves up to more discovery. Wait, right? right. The exactly. Streisand effect? What is that? Uh, Barbara Streisand? What, you, yes, what is the, that a reference to? So it's Barbara Streisand famously sued, I think it was the National Enquirer for libel. I can't even remember what it is that they said about her, the effect of her lawsuit was to simply elevate the story and have it repeated so many times afterwards. If she'd never sued them, the, right. the story would have died. So if, if Facebook actually sues this whistleblower, they've got two things. First, the story keeps going on and on and on. And second of all, it gives her the opportunity to seek discovery against them and to depose people. So well, Facebook is going to be thinking long gonna, and hard. Yeah, they're not going to sue her, but judging from uh, Monica Bickert's uh, appearances, they may try to just dest- destroy her in the court of public opinion. Yeah, I don't think they're going to you know, no, have much was, luck on yeah, that. Yeah, hey, yeah. Uh, Mike, I mean, right. all three of us, I'm sure, yeah. have interviewed many whistleblowers uh, over the years, us as reporters and and um, Victoria I as mean, a congressional in investigator. Small conference rooms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we know that they, you know, that they're passionate, they're obs- they can be very obsessive. And um, sometimes they don't do well under you know a ton of scrutiny. This person is different. I mean, she was incredibly composed. I mean, you said she was lawyered up, but she actually her presentation was like she was a lawyer herself. I mean, she was really very clear and smart um, and and well prepared. And not a single senator went after her. No, should be something that Facebook should be alarmed about. Among other things, she zero support. Among among other things, she she united the Senate. You know, Democrats. Yeah, I think Marsha Marsha Blackburn and uh, and and Richard Blumenthal have never had so much in common. Yeah, Uh, well, put her in charge of solving the debt ceiling. Then (laughs) (laughs) you know, Uh, maybe she could bring everybody together. But it is a reminder, though. I mean, you know, whistleblowers do play a pretty essential part in our democratic process, you know, uh, as it has evolved. And yes, somebody like Haugen does have protection because she's exposing the secrets of a company that's a very powerful company that's out of control. But people in the intelligence community and the government who seek to come forward with improper actions don't fare so well. And there are still, you know, multiple criminal cases, prosecutions that have been done by the Justice 
department under, you know, multiple administrations, including this one. But also, you know, just as a reminder, uh, we're going to talk in a moment about the uh, current Supreme Court case about Abu Zubaydah, which is all about how he was tortured, waterboarded by the CIA uh, when he was taken into custody after uh, 9-11. And um, we only learned about the CIA's use of black site prisons and enhanced interrogation techniques because somebody leaked classified information. We only learned about warrantless wiretapping by the Bush administration because somebody leaked classified information. We only learned about the abuses of the NSA collecting phone records of every American because Snowden, as insufferable as I find him, leaked that classified information and had a uh, impact. So it's a reminder when you hear people pounding the table about leakers that they uh, do play a uh, really vital role in our process. But let's, uh, since I mentioned Abu Zubaydah, there was this Supreme Court hearing today on this. And uh, Victoria, I know you've been uh, following that. So bring us up to date on, um, just remind us who Zubaida was and why this Supreme Court oral argument was taking place and how it went down among the uh, justices. So Abu Zubaida was uh, captured by the CIA and by American forces early in the war on terror, early after 9-11, and was uh, was held in black sites, not in Guantanamo. He was held in several black sites over the course of many years and was suspected by American operatives of having a very close connection to al-Qaeda. And he and was, bin Laden personally, I think. I think, right? I think he was suspected of being bin Laden's chauffeur. Was that? I think that's uh, or. Uh, anyway, I don't know about was, the chauffeur, but some he kind was, of operational yeah. commander. I, I yeah. think at one That's point the they, they said they he was the number three right. Al Qaeda person. Yeah, he was tortured, waterboarded eighty times, more than eighty times over the course of twenty days. And one of the places where he was held was in Poland, where apparently some of this torture also occurred. Abu Zubaida has filed essentially a complaint with. Polish prosecutors. He is entitled to present evidence to the Polish prosecutors that he is a victim of uh, U.S. abuse on their soil. And he has been seeking essentially the testimony of his torturers in Poland in order to assist his case. The United States is attempting to keep them from testifying and keep that information from Polish prosecutors, asserting a state secrets doctrine, and the case essentially reached the Supreme Court today, where at least it appears that the panel was almost to a person, regardless whether or not it was a liberal justice or a conservative justice, more or less on the government side, that these were state secrets, that the U.S. government shouldn't be required to disclose them to Poland. The courts, um, have, the have, always been, the courts have always been very deferential to the government on this state secrets privilege, right? Exactly. You know, with with probably ample justification, you know, you don't want the United States government to basically be disclosing incredibly sensitive national security information easily. Apparently, the oral argument would, did not go well for al-Zubaydah until the last four minutes when... And Al-Zubaydah is in Guantanamo right now. So. He's been in Guantanamo for, you know, 15, what, 15 years. years yeah. Right. 
and, and never been charged with a crime. Never been but charged, but he's important held... Important point to remember. He's essentially held incommunicado in Guantanamo. Within, apparently, the last five minutes of oral argument, uh, Justice Gorsuch asked the U.S. lawyer, well, why don't you just allow Abu Zubaydah to testify in Poland? Just, you know, you don't need to reveal state secrets. Just let him testify about what happened to him in Poland. And the, the U.S., a government lawyer indicated that no one had ever raised this before, that it had never been requested before. And the the in the last four minutes, the entire oral argument turned on a dime with every justice apparently howling at the U.S. government for not agreeing to let him testify in Poland and averting this entire debate in front of the Supreme Court. Yeah, well, uh, you know, there was another part of that Supreme Court oral argument that leapt out at me. You may remember, you know, back in, I think it was 2007, the Supreme Court came down with this, you know, landmark ruling saying all these Gitmo detainees had the right of habeas corpus to go before a federal judge in the United States and demand a hearing about whether they should still be held in custody, especially because most of them have never been charged with a crime. And that was, you know, cited as a great blow for liberty and and justice, you know, for everybody. And Zubaida did, you know, back in the aftermath of that. And at one point, Roberts says, well, you know, can't you just, you know, bring a habeas petition for Abu Zubaida? And the lawyer says, we have. And then Breyer says, well, what was the ruling? And he's told, much to his surprise, that there's never been a ruling in Abu Zubaydah's habeas case. It just has languished because no judge wants to uh, take it upon him or herself to release a Gitmo detainee, regardless of what the evidence is or is not. And this also goes again to the question of whether or not the United States government would actually allow him to testify in Polish court. Right. We should we should just as a, a side note here uh, recall that uh, I believe it was Abu Zubaydah when he because he was captured fairly soon after the 9/11 attacks one of the first supposedly big capture uh, by the U, by U.S. forces it was that case that I think instigated the torture memo it was the reason that John Yu had to, you know, wrote a OLC memo, Office of Legal Counsel memo at the Justice Department, that these harsh interrogation techniques, uh, now widely referred to as torture, was legal. Yeah. And another reminder that the first interrogator of Abu Zubaydah was our friend and frequent skullduggery guest Ali Sufan of the FBI, who doesn't use extreme enhanced interrogation uh, techniques, uses standard uh, FBI rapport building techniques and actually gets some serious information out of him, including the identity of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the ringleader of the 9-11 plot, and then gets shoved aside 
side by the uh, by the CIA who begin you know the waterboarding stuff and Sufan lodges complaints uh, to the Mueller pulls all FBI agents out of That's CIA right. interrogations and that really is what started to lead to the exposure help lead to the exposure of what the CIA was up to now I'm feeling like uh, this is a skullduggery from the Bush era <laughs> like 2006 or seven well um, and if we're going know, down that road I would point well, out, let's talk uh, about drones huh well that, <laughs> drones no I was just gonna say yeah. you know I would love to know uh, Victoria what Justice Kavanaugh said during these or- or arguments because of course he was in the Bush administration at that time. He probably was one of the people who was literally running out of the White House because uh, they thought that there was a plane headed uh, for the White House. So it'd be interesting to know what, uh, I think I know what his position will be on this uh, state secrets privilege, but uh, everyone seems to have a personal connection here. Well, one of the the more interesting developments of this current Supreme Court term, which is uh, the first one since COVID started that they're doing in person. So that's, uh, that's interesting. But apparently in the first four oral arguments, Clarence Thomas has asked a question. Yes. What is going on with Clarence Thomas? Like, did he have some kind well, of, you know, did he go to therapy? And no, like, uh, no, no. <laughs> finally he was encouraged, speak, Clarence. You can it's completely you know, speak fascinating. your so, mind. Yeah. So during COVID, when they, uh, when they started using, doing telephonic, oral arguments. Uh, The way it was conducted was essentially the chief justice would give each other justice uh, in turn in order of priority. He would he would call on them and say, it's your five minutes, justice, whoever. And so Thomas began getting called on. And so on the the telephone oral arguments began asking questions because he was called on to ask a question. So he did it. And now that they're back in person, he's continuing to ask questions. And having having listened, for what it's worth, to many of these oral arguments with Justice Thomas asking questions, I can say he asks good ones. Yeah. All right. A reminder, we actually have a guest for this episode. So um, (laughs) and a good one at that. All right, we are now joined by Greg Miller of the Washington Post and one of the paper's lead reporters on the Pandora Papers extravaganza. Greg, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks very much for having me. So quite a cache of documents and quite a series of stories you and partner news organizations have been doing. And there's a lot to talk about, about this secret financial system and how it works and who exploits it. But I want to just start out with this cache of documents that's the basis for this. We've seen leaks like this before, the Panama Papers, uh, most, you know, leaps to mind, which came from a particular law firm in Panama that was doing this. What we're talking about here is 11.9 million financial records from all over the world dispersed in um, various countries and coming from various places. And so I'm a little puzzled as to how uh, such a disparate set of documents could 
get leaked in one massive file, how one person or one group of people could have possibly had access to all this. What can you tell us about how these documents came to light? I have a hard time believing, Michael, that you're that puzzled here, but... Um... I mean, I think. Well, that, it's a rhetorical yes. uh, <laughs> I to get you that. to explain to our <laughs> listeners how this works. That. Look, there are certain things that are not even completely clear to those of us who are in the project. And even the, what, what little we, we do know, we're kind of not at a, we don't have a great deal of liberty to talk about. But, you know, there were a lot of conversations along the way at the Post, and I'm sure at a lot of the other news organizations about, well, what's going on here? Where did this stuff come from and how? And do we feel okay with that? And so we we thought that through. And, you know, when we published, when the Post published the, the first round of stories this past Sunday, there was also a letter from Sally Busby, the, the Post's executive editor, explaining that decision in, in our thinking. And so you is, are likely as good as anybody out there at, at sussing out what the, the likely explanations are here. And it's perfectly fine to, to speculate, but I can't give you any answers. How do you go through almost 12 million documents? I, I imagine there are a lot of spreadsheets involved. <laughs> yeah, there is a ton of spreadsheets involved. And the answer is badly. I think, <laughs> at least at least initially, and then you start to figure it out over time. But it's, you know, there, there are many ways of trying to approach a problem like this. To sort through 11.9 million documents is not really feasible for even for a big org news organization like the Post or, or even a, a collection of news organizations as part of ICIJ. The weird thing is that in the end, I think that as strategic as we tried to be about it. And we were putting together spreadsheets with lists of names of different categories and trying to trying to de design software that would let us run those against the data in the in these files. The bigger, some of the bigger stories were just sort of like stabs in the dark. Like the story about, I'm sure I'm getting ahead of things here a tiny bit, but the story about the woman who had an alleged relationship with Vladimir Putin came because this Russian news organization published a story identifying her one day while others were already poking around in this trove. Somebody punched her name in and up it comes. So a lot of the, some of the stories are just kind of luck or luck of the draw and, and others require a more systematic approach. It reminds me of a, an old uh, investigative reporter I used to work for named Greg Rushford, who used to say with a big gleeful smile, I made it up and then it turned out to be true. <laughs> but that's great. But we should just dive into the substance uh, here because there are so many important revelations in these documents, um, among them stories that, uh, that you reported and authored. So just give our listeners just a, a quick overview of what you think the most important revelations are in this uh, trove of, uh, of, of documents, uh, and then we'll get into some of the specific stories. Sure. I mean, I think that, um, there, let me take, let me answer that in a couple of ways. 
First, I think that it would have been possible to write a thousand stories off of these documents. And in the end, the post came down to about eight that we thought were probably the most important we'd come across and we wanted to include for our readers and didn't want to deluge them with anything beyond that. And those included, you know, stories, foreign stories that are, that are foreign in focus and a couple that are U.S. In, it, focused. Uh, and we, I'm not sure we'll talk about all of those. But then I think that, you know, there are even bigger takeaways when you sort of even back, take another step back. And to me, one of them is that you guys have already alluded to the previous leaks, Panama Papers, Paradise Papers, others have led to efforts to contain this problem, the offshore financial system. And I think Pandora Papers shows just how elusive a target that is, how hard that is to do, how good these organizations are at getting around every new barrier you try to erect, and how much demand exists for these services and capabilities, and how many companies are out there still eager to provide it. So who is exploiting these loopholes and this in this shadow international financial system? Let's start with some of the world leaders who until now have had their financial assets obscured by this system. Yeah. So there's a lot of world leaders who are exposed here. And this is one of the differences the substantial differences between this project and Panama Papers. There are more politicians, more public officials identified in these documents than in any other leak. And the highlight ones, I think, are King Abdullah of Jordan, the leader of Kenya, Kenyatta is his name, the leader of the Czech Republic, prime minister of the Czech Republic. There are others across Latin America, leaders in Ecuador and prior presidents and current presidents of Panama. There's quite a long list. What you learn about them varies. Uh, as I said, we learned more about Abdullah than I think we did about any other world figure. So I, I have a couple of questions. First with Abdullah, he's the king of the country, right? I understand his defenses. These were his personal funds, not government funds, although in the Middle East, it's often hard to um, distinguish between the two. But I mean, what is, in Abdullah's case, what, what's his motivation for trying to take advantage of these secretive LLCs buying up, you know, properties around the world? I mean, surely he's not worried about Jordanian tax collectors. He doesn't, um, he, he doesn't have to pay taxes, right? He doesn't but have to pay taxes. His, so his lawyers what, confirm that. Yeah. <laughs> so what is his motivation in using these, you know, obscure, secretive methods of hiding his purchases? I think two things that I want to answer there, Michael. I mean, the, you started off by talking about how difficult it can be to distinguish in the Middle East between what's public and what's private. So I think there's a couple possible motivations for Abdullah here. I think it's, you know, the one that his lawyer cited was security. This is a guy who has faced plots in, on his life by Al-Qaeda, whose country has been a target of the Islamic State and in the fight against the Islamic State. I mean, there are real security concerns for him, and we get that. I think, though, the likelihood that he would be, that they would target his, his fortified compound in Malibu is kind of remote. He's not even there more than one or two days a year, as far as we can tell. So I think there are other motivations, and I, I don't know, but I, I suspect he doesn't he went to a lot of trouble to make sure none of this came to light publicly. And I don't imagine that this would be something he wants the Jordanian public to know about. 
even after our stories ran, you know, not a single Jordanian outlet uh, published any of this, except one that we talked to, and they were contacted by the intelligence service and told to take it down. I was going to say, Greg, I mean, Jordan is one of the poorest countries in the Middle East, in the world. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time there. My sense was that the royal family did not generally like to flaunt its wealth because, I mean, I covered bread riots in Jordan. And the likeliest thing that would spark political instability is poverty and resentment against the elites there. So I, I would think that would be a part of the motivation. So let me ask you about another one that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but kind of grabbed me, and that is uh, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, who you know obviously got a lot of attention during mm -hmm. the uh, impeachment battle a, a couple of years ago. He seemed like a sort of hapless good guy caught in a web of Trump's corruption, and you report from these papers that he owns a stake in a British Virgin Islands firm, uh, which was uh, holding shares in film production production and distribution companies, a month before he's elected, Zelensky transfers his shares to a friend and business partner, Sheffer. So what's going on there? I can't believe if he if these shares were valuable, he's just giving up the assets to his business buddy. It seems like a dodge to um, protect his assets from Ukrainian authorities. But, I, you know, th that one kind of leapt out at me. Tell us what, what Zelensky was up to and what's been the fallout in Ukraine. On Zelensky, I, I don't, I can't answer your question in tremendous detail, Michael. We looked at that case. We thought that would obviously be uh, somewhat of interest for the Washington Post, given the role in the Trump impeachment of Zelensky. But um, the impeachment the, of Trump. The impeachment of Trump. I'm sorry. <laughs> Based on his conversation with Zelensky. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's another thing I should mention is that the the stories that we published in the Washington Post are just like a fraction of the total number of stories out there by world partners. And there were journalists in Ukraine and in Russia that were focused on a different sets of stories. And so I'm sure there's more detail for those who want to go looking for it on Zelensky and some of the other players. So uh, to me, one of the most fascinating things about the Pandora Papers is you characterize it as an offshore finance system. But one of the things that you guys reveal is that it's moved most emphatically onshore to the United States. Tell us about how the, what 10 years ago or 15 years ago, American politicians would have railed against in terms of uh, poor financial practices has come home to roost in the United States. Yeah, that to me is like a, such a powerful takeaway from the stories. And my colleague, Debbie Sensiper, really focused on that. That was something I didn't even know going into this project or have any clue about. The extent to which there are states in the United States that have gone out of their way to position themselves as kind of providers of financial secrecy, the same way the British Virgin Islands and the Cayman Islands have been doing for many, many years. And, you know, you look at these states and they include Delaware, South Dakota was prominent in our coverage, Alaska, Nevada, and a couple of others. They seem to be competing, you know, trying to find, basically trying to find ways to bring money and business into their states, kind of at the expense of the, the rest of the country in some ways, right? They are undermining 
the transparency laws and things that the federal government and presidents from both parties have championed at different times. So, what, you know, one of the interesting things about it, and it's it's something we haven't spoken about yet, is the way that this secrecy and these kind of offshore and now onshore accounts impact the way the entire kind of global and American tax system runs, the way law enforcement has access to ill-gotten gains. But the, the South Dakota story focuses on not Putin, not Abdullah, not any global leader. It, it tells the story of a woman named Cleopatra Cameron and how she uses this system to essentially keep her kids from getting child support. It's it's a small story that I think illustrates the the larger impact of the system and maybe you can can elaborate. Yeah, and it's a that story is a microcosm of the bigger issue here which is that money can move past boundaries and jurisdictions whether those are state jurisdictions and boundaries or national ones. And that that is part of what makes this such a difficult problem to confront and to solve. Um, yeah, and, and, and it's not just people in the United States uh, setting up trusts in South Dakota. Uh, Debbie's team also found cases of uh, foreign leaders and wealthy individuals in other countries that are parking money in American trust because they regard it as, as a very safe place to put it. Nobody's going to get to it. Nobody's going to find it. And that's kind of an astonishing thing to say about, you know, a, a place like Sioux Falls, South Dakota. You reported actually uh, that uh, there was at least one foreign leader, a former vice president of the Dominican Republic, um, who once led one of the country's largest sugar producers, setting up trusts in South Dakota for his personal wealth and shares of his company, you know, that's a classic case of a foreign official or foreign foreign official using this system. And it brings to mind something that I haven't seen addressed yet, but has certainly been out there for a while is, and that's the impact on the American political system, because these trusts are disguised. You don't know who the real owner is. It's some LLC that's owned by some other LLC, and it's very hard to penetrate who the individuals are. Yet, how to police, say, campaign contributions or uh, money that flows, dark money that flows to various, uh, you know, 501c4s that seek to influence our politics. You know, what's to prevent these disguised entities from pumping large sums of money into to influence the American political system? Right. And it's I, you know, I've been asked a lot in the past four or five days as I did various shows about the Pandora Papers project. And one of the inevitable questions was why should ordinary people care about what rich people are doing with their money? And I think that's one of the answers, Michael. It's like it undermines democracy sometimes in fundamental ways, or at least it creates the possibility of doing so. When it undermines the accountability of elected officials, when you can hide money, whether that money is fairly obtained or ill-gotten money, you know, it erodes and corrodes what the rest of us get. It's not just people paying less than their fair share of taxes. Uh, I spoke with, for the story, I spoke with an FBI agent who was actually on the Mueller team who talked and who handled the investigation of Manafort 
which was largely, you know, about his offshore dealings and hiding money. And she, and she used those words that this, this hurts everybody, right? This, this affects everybody in some way. It touches everyone. Yeah. Well, it surely is further driving income inequality around the world, which fuels populist resentments, which uh, is, you know, as we have seen, can lead to authoritarian governments. And I, I want to get back to, you know, we, we were talking about these tax havens uh, going onshore and particularly uh, to states like uh, South Dakota and other states uh, in the U.S. But ironically, one thing that you do not see in these Pandora papers are the names of kind of bold face, the bold face names of American billionaires, you know, the sort of... ProPublica e- got that leak. The, yeah, the Elon Musks or the Jeff Bezos or, or Bill Gates. And and I, you explain that in your reporting. It, it's a, kind of a depressing reason. But talk about that. Why why are there not big American billionaires uh, who, who are trying to hide their assets in the same way? Yeah, and trust me, we went looking for those names. You know, I think the, the most searched name was probably Trump <laughs> and then <laughs> Bezos and then a few others. I think that there's two things. One is, you know, we're our visibility was was constrained by the companies that were uh, involved in this leak and exposed by this leak. And so there's 14 entities out there in different places, and this data may just have missed offshore providers that those kinds of names individuals use. But I did I did try to ask experts on that question. And they cited another reason, which is, you know, in the United States, the wealthiest of the wealthy pay such low tax rates to begin with that they have less incentive than uber rich people elsewhere to go looking for tax havens. I mean, as we've seen from reporting on Trump's taxes, there were times when he paid next to nothing. Mitt Romney obviously had a hard time with the answer to how much he paid in in taxes back when he was running for from president, you know, it's part of uh, it's it's one of the more startling things about our system. So, all joking aside about ProPublica getting the leak about where American billionaires' money is going, uh, one of the things that the Pandora Papers really reveals is. I think what you might call the golden age of leaking. We had Panama Papers, Paradise Papers, Pandora Papers, put a pin in how you guys decide what you name these papers. But then ProPublica had the the huge leak. This week, there have been startling revelations from a Facebook leaker. Why do you think we've entered this golden age of leaking? I have a couple of thoughts. I'm, I'm, I want to hear some of your thoughts as well on this. I mean, I think part of it is just as simple as the the pervasive nature of digital technology in our lives, right? So it's it's um, and you can expand that circle to include Snowden, who is sneaking material, highly classified material, out on a chip inside of a of a Rubik's cube. So it's it's the prevalence of technology and digitized information that puts and enables you know people. Ultimately, these are people who are making these decisions to gather this kind of material and package it in some way and leak it. And sometimes it's an insider, and sometimes it's an it's an external adversary. It's a it's a, it, there are hacks behind some of these leaks. I mean, the the uh, WikiLeaks dumps of the 2016 election. We now believe um, U.S. intelligence agencies concluded was carried out by the Russian government and then dumped on us. So. 
I think that's the bottom line. Let, let's exactly remember right. when Daniel Ellsberg leaked the Pentagon Papers, he had to spend weeks, if not months, a actually, copy you know, uh, yeah, but in a, in a copying machine, copying those documents one by one, you know, thousands of pages. Uh, so merely, of course, to that proves the point assembled. about that. Of right. course, that proves the point about technology, Mike, yeah. which is that if he, if he didn't have access to a copy machine, we might not never. <laughs> Never have seen the <laughs> Pentagon Papers. But I think what you're saying is exactly right. It's the Internet. It's it's digital uh, technology, which has led to an age of kind of radical transparency because it's possible. You know, I'm sure there are other forces, social forces and political forces at work as well. But it couldn't happen without the, the technology. It does make us as news people confront uncomfortable questions sometimes, right? I mean, I, I get asked about this a lot. I'm sure you guys do, too. And you know, we as journalists don't always care about the motivations of our sources. We're evaluating the veracity of the material that they have and its significance. But, you know, in, in some cases, are, you, you do wonder sometimes about to what extent does the massive coverage of certain kinds of leaks encourage the criminal, illegal ways in which that material was obtained. And we sort of sometimes sort of wipe our hands of it and say, well, we're here to use this information to help educate people on a very important issue, which is true, but it's more complicated than that. Well, we've done a lot of reporting on WikiLeaks lately and, uh, of course, have delved into those complexities and moral ambiguities. So it is a, a feature of Let me just follow up, and, today. and this goes back a little bit to the sourcing question I asked you at the outset. When we had when ProPublica got those, the tax records of all the billionaires who were paying no taxes, we had Steve Engelberg from ProPublica on, and he acknowledged that they didn't even know who leaked those documents. They got them, they were able to authenticate them, but they had no idea where and how they came to them. Well, they know how, but you know who was providing them. In this case, do you know the identity of the people or person who leaked these documents um, and what their motivation may have been? I don't, actually. I Does can, that give you I some I can thoughts? honestly say that I thought of, that we, but we thought about that. I think that, you know, we would be, we would be concerned if we thought at the post that we were being used as particularly by an intelligence service. The nature of this particular leak is so interesting, right? I mean, unlike the Panama Papers, where there was a leak from a single law firm in Panama City, in this case, we're talking about 14 different offshore entities spanning the globe, really. You know, there was a lot of theorizing about, well, what are, what's really happening here? And also, those who were exposed by it don't fall into any neat categories either. There are lots of American allies. There are lots of American adversaries. There are more Russians in these documents than anybody else, but that's almost always true. And so, yeah, it's a super thorny question. Yeah. And, and just look, I'm just speculating here. Obviously, I, I know less than you do about how all this came about. But if you know, your big first takeaway was King Abdullah of Jordan, he's got a lot of enemies in the Mideast in particular, neighboring countries like the Saudis, various other um, actors in the Middle East. If a foreign intelligence service wanted to stick it to King Abdullah, 
who was the target of a coup attempt not long ago, a good way to do it would be to collect all these files, send them all to you. You play up the Abdullah stuff. You, you play up a lot of other stuff as well, but they've achieved their purpose. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And you saw King Abdullah uh, practically alluded to that theory this week in his scant response to this subject when he was in public. He pointed to there are there are those who are sort of against us out there. We are stronger than them. We're going to prevail. But I have no doubt that he suspects that this was the work of Saudi Arabia or an adversary. It may not only be a rival intelligence service that just wants to hurt Abdullah. I imagine that King Abdullah is also a CIA asset in the way his father was for a long time, certainly a very important ally in the Middle East. And so by embarrassing him, undermining him, it also hurts United States national security interests. Let me touch, but let me follow. Let me just say, Daniel, I think that's interesting. You made me think of something just now, which is so Putin is convinced that this is all a CIA operation, basically. But if it were, you know, Abdullah would not be their first target, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I did want to ask about one of the, what I thought was one of the more colorful stories that the Post did based on these papers. And that involved a, a, a British scholar and an arts dealer um, who was trafficking and looted antiquities in, uh, from Cambodia, which led Washington Post reporters on a, a kind of global treasure hunt to track all of this down. Tell us a little bit about Douglas Latchford, I think his name was. Douglas Latchford and Peter Wariski is the, the Washington Post reporter who really did a great job on that story. And he was focused on that for quite a long time. I mean, it's a story of an individual who passed himself, who sort of presented himself as an appreciator of Cambodian relics, spent much of his life in Cambodia, was truly knowledgeable about the subject and about these artifacts, but at the same time was secretly using shell companies to hold some of these assets that were looted and, and taken out of Cambodia. And, and many of them ended up in museums. I think that this story is so interesting on so many levels, including the lengths that looters of artifacts like this will go to, to create kind of a trail or a paper trail to lend sort of authenticity to the acquisition of these documents, right? They become worth more if there's more history on their provenance, if they have been appeared in prestigious museums and things like that. It's a fascinating story. So I want to come back to some of the consequences or the the impact of this kind of complex global system. You know, over the course of the last 20 years, the kind of global uh, legal regime has put a lot of money and a lot of work into trying to stop illicit financial flows to catch money laundering schemes and to make the system more transparent. Reading the Pandora Papers, one might come to the conclusion that they have failed utterly. Do you think that's a fair conclusion or is there a chance that people can still get caught? I don't, I don't know if, that, if that's a fair conclusion. My takeaway is a tiny bit different. I think that some of them some of these measures have actually worked at the margins. You know, they're, they're not eradicating the problem or even coming close to it, but perhaps whittling away at it around the edges. And maybe that's all you can accomplish 
in some ways, at least in the short term. In the Abdullah case, for instance, one of the big fights that we were able to read about from the internal documents from his financial managers was how they were going to get around new transparency laws in the British Virgin Islands. After Panama Papers, BVI basically passed a law that said, look, authorities here from now on, we're going to have every name, every real, every time somebody sets up a shell company, we need to have the real name of the real owner on a special secret list that we can cough up if we get if we get pinged by the British authorities or something like this. And there were arguments going back and forth in the emails between the Abdullah's financial uh, advisor in Switzerland and the lawyers in Panama over what to do about this. So, it, you know, you can say that it does seem to create an, an impediment and ultimately the law firm kind of held their ground, it appears in this one. Let me ask you about another takeaway I had from this, which is a bit different than we've been talking about, it is different than what we've been talking about, but it leapt out at me when reading your story in Wednesday's Washington Post about uh, various figures next to close to Putin who have exploited this financial system left and right. You know, you started out with Deripaska. There are other characters uh, uh, who were uh, old buddies of Putin who set up, you know, LLCs in, in Cyprus and elsewhere. But a driver of this was not was the U.S. addiction to using sanctions to try to influence Russian behavior. And it, that's something we use all over the world routinely when we can't think of what else to do about when a country does something we don't like, we sanction various people in it. But you're right on that. And this really leapt out at me. But the files also underscore the limits of sanctions, making clear that vast quantities of Russian money continue to slosh through secret global accounts, while Moscow's actions beyond its borders seem undeterred. Russia remains in control of Crimea. A prominent critic of Putin was poisoned last year. U.S. intelligence agencies accused Moscow of mounting a new attack on a U.S. presidential election. So, here we have a lot or some of this activity is driven by oligarchs and others trying to hide their assets from U.S. sanctions, from the consequences of U.S. sanctions, which, as you point out in this piece, aren't really having much an effect yeah. on Russian behavior. It's interesting because the authors of those sanctions will say, well, you don't know what we deterred. You know, things would have been worse if it weren't for what we did after Ukraine. Well, the Russians tried to assassinate Navalny. <laughs> they, uh, they tried to yeah, assassinate no, I'm, Skripal. I'm I mean, I'm with you. It's a, yeah. it's a difficult argument to make. When you look across the spectrum of sanctions and the, and the behavior that they were intended to deter, it's hard to make the case that, 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 that the U.S. and Europe is winning that war. Um, and... The number of, I mean, this has become in our generation, the go-to foreign policy tool for the United States in the relationship with Russia. 800 Russian individuals or entities sanctioned just in the last seven or eight years. And, and it's know, the essentially reasons, feckless. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I think that this, what our story showed that it, these sanctions hit their targets and there is a reaction inside these networks of Russian money. There really is a reaction. So there is some infliction of pain, but it's not enough 
to change Russia's behavior. And it's not even clear that the Kremlin cares or that those who are getting hit don't already factor this in as the cost of doing business, right? That this is just the price they pay for the wealth that they are accumulating in this system. Yeah, well, I think that alone should cause some, you know, rethinking among the foreign policy establishment in the United States about how can we effectively influence foreign behavior and are we by using sanctions as much as we do basically contributing fueling this secretive financial system. I didn't end up using this in the story, but I had a conversation with Michael McFall, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, about this along the way. And I hope uh, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here. I don't think so. But you guys, I'm sure, have had him on the show. We have. He, he is. He says that he always thought that maybe it should be like a parking ticket handled like a like parking tickets. You put you slap the first ticket down. And then you're trying to deter that behavior. You want that person to stop parking their car in that spot at that time or to pay the right, you know, their meter. The next, if they don't pay, the, the next ticket is more expensive. And then it keeps escalating after that until you get to the deterrence that you're looking for, that the U.S. sanctions are too often, he thinks, one off. You hit somebody with sanctions, then you forget about it, move on, and nothing really changes. Whereas if they were designed to escalate and increase pain until they had the desired effect, perhaps they might be more successful. I don't know. It was just a, an interesting idea. Maybe is <laughs> the only thing I can think to say. On that. <laughs> right. So not that you would uh, ever solicit a leak or anything like that, but what's the next cash? What is the, the missing piece from the Pandora Papers that you're still looking for? Gosh, you've already touched on, you know, all these other amazing leaks in this crazy era that we're in right now. And um, some of them, including the names that are not in Pandora, like Jeff Bezos. So um, it, I'm not really sure what what will come next. Be, it does seem inevitable that there that something else will be coming along before too long, though, given the, the pace of these disclosures right now and the incentives to keep doing it. You know, we were talking about this earlier. And you know, at the Post is like every other news organization. Now we have a tip line that is constructed so that people can put information there without leaving any fingerprints whatsoever. And so there are all these mechanisms now for people to, to provide information on things that they warrant scrutiny, warrant public attention. And I think you're right for sure, Victoria, that we're going to see more and more of it. So as, as long as you mention that, Danny mentioned our story uh, from last week about WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and all the things the CIA was trying to get him. But how, but it, it, it goes back to a question that people have asked about the uh, uh, prosecution of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, which is you set up a tip line to solicit documents that might be of public interest. You don't know where sometimes those documents are coming from, as you've acknowledged in the case of, of the Pandora Papers. How do you distinguish what the Washington Post is doing here with what WikiLeaks was doing when it solicited documents, uh, classified documents, and published them? And in their case, you know, sometimes they may have known where they were coming from, sometimes they may have not. You're really trying to lure me out onto a plank, aren't you, Mike? That's what we do on Skullduggery. <laughs> well, 
you know, there are distinctions and maybe some of them are distinctions without differences. Correct me if I'm wrong. You guys are much, much more expert on, on, on WikiLeaks, especially of late than I am. But, you know, there were instances in which WikiLeaks appeared to be actually providing instruction for theft of certain materials. That's obviously a line that a news organization should never cross. And any and no news organization that I've ever been part of has ever crossed that line. We the existence of of a tip line is an, an an incentive in and of itself, I suppose. But we're not actively soliciting, you know, people within the CIA or the Pentagon to violate their oaths. These are decisions that mostly, in, in most of the bigger leaks in history, are, are decisions of conscience at some level not inducement. Yeah, sometimes. And certainly the Facebook uh, whistleblower who testified before the Senate this week, Francis Hogan, seemed, you know, very much motivated by conscience. But yeah. as we all know, that's, you know, sources and leakers often have multiple motives and driven by you know, sort of, you know, multiple factors. Sure. Um, in, in any case, it is a fascinating series. All should read it. There's also like video stuff you've done as well at the post on this, right? There's video. There's some really interesting interactive stuff. The ICIJ website has even more. So if you're really keenly interested on what a particular country almost anywhere has, you, you can find it there. All right. And we will look, as will our listeners, Greg Miller, thanks again for joining us on Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. It's always great to talk with you guys. 